Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn them to uh, Mark chapter 4. And uh, this is the second to last uh, discussion of the uh, four-chair discipling. And um, so this morning, we want to talk a little bit about what we're going to call sticking points between chairs. And so we'll flesh this out in just a few minutes. We'll make some sense of it. Um, Again, just by way of kind of quickly reviewing, we've spent our time over the last, I guess, probably about a couple months now, um, examining these chairs, uh, what the chairs represent. And we've been challenged to consider exactly where uh, we might see ourselves as it pertains to these chairs and what they represent. And so this morning, I want to take a few moments to look at something that might not seem like much on the surface. But you might notice um, that there's something that exists between each one of these chairs. I'll give you just a second to look at them and see if you can identify what exists between each one of these four chairs. That's something, I think I heard somebody say it, is space. There's space in between each of these chairs. And honestly, that's not, that wasn't done for like pragmatic reasons so that we could make a, an illustration out of it or so that we could, you know, uh, teach this this morning. But it's just a reality of how like we set up chairs, right? Even these chairs in the front here that are connected together with hooks and hangers, there's a much smaller amount, but there's space in between these chairs. And so as we look at this space this morning, I want us to consider that those space, that space represents sticking points, all right? And that might be that area where you kind of get stuck in between these chairs. And, and again, I want to remind you, there's, I, I actually just noticed that the space here is bigger between those two. That has no significance or bearing, but I will remind you, a number of weeks ago when we looked at this, this space was a little bit bigger, and that space between chair one and chair two was strategically placed, because the difference between chair one and chair two is the cross of Christ. And so you see that that space between them is filled with the cross at Calvary. And the promise of new life by faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But as we move from chair one, spiritually dead, to chair two, spiritually alive, as we've said, the goal for the Christian life is to continue progressing. It's not merely to get saved or to trust Jesus or to make a profession of faith. Yes, that is part of this process whereby we go from chair one to chair two, spiritually dead to spiritually alive. But the goal for all believers is that they would spiritually reproduce. This is not my idea. This is God's idea. Okay, So God has communicated in his word that the goal is that we would mature spiritually to the point where we are spiritually reproducing. And I would submit to you this morning as we think about this space and we think about these sticking points that Jesus, as we would expect Jesus to do, encapsulates for us very well what's represented in this space. And so as we look to Mark chapter 4 this morning, we find that Jesus, just as Jesus would do many times throughout his ministry, uh, he's before the crowds and he's teaching them, he's instructing them. And there's been much conversation about exactly what was the, the, the point, what was his emphasis in terms of what he's teaching as we look at the text today. Some of us, I mean, even in uh, my Bible, some of your Bibles might say this as well, um, they might have the heading above Mark 4 as the parable of the sower. 
And so there's been conversation. Is this parable about the sower? Is this parable about the seed? Is this parable about the soils? And I would submit to you this morning um, that the emphasis of this text is not the sower. The emphasis of this text is the soils, the recipients of the seed, that which is sown. Okay? And so I would submit, again, that, that... the emphasis here is these soils. And these soils represent responses to the seed that is sown. Okay? So you have a person, the sower, who proclaims the gospel message. Originally, it was Jesus who came, right, proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Okay, and, and now Christ has, of course, been crucified, resurrected, and ascended. And there are those, originally the 12 apostles, who have followed behind him. And they have proclaimed this same message. And for two millennia, the same message has been proclaimed. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right? And so you have the sower, the one who does the proclaiming. You have the seed. That's the gospel, the, 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 the meat, if you will, what we're called to believe in for the sake of salvation. And the soil represents, and I really appreciated Pastor, uh, Pastor Aaron's heart as he was praying this morning, as he was praying that God would prepare the soil of our hearts this morning to engage with God's word as we consider this reality of soil, because that's what the word of God is teaching here. That the heart that hears the word will respond in a certain way. Every single person that hears the gospel of Jesus Christ responds to it. There is no other option. All right? So we need to understand that this morning. If you've heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, most of you I know emphatically have. Okay, if you've heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have responded. There is no such thing as not responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we'll make sense of this in just a few moments. Now, one more matter of of housekeeping before we read our text. I want to point out right away that these four chairs are not representative of the four soils. Okay, so do not look at this and say, oh, okay, soil one, soil two, soil three, soil four. Do not do that, okay, because it's not accurate. It's going to lead us astray in our thinking and how we're navigating this. Just know that there, there's some overlap here between four chairs and four soils, and they are related, and we'll see that, but the, each chair is not indicative of each soil. So let's read together Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. And he said to them, he, of course, is Jesus, do you not understand this parable? He's talking to his disciples. How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. And so if you think back to our call to worship this morning, 
Pastor Aaron was preparing us for the explanation from Jesus of the parable. And he says, there was a sower and he sowed the seed and some landed on the path, some landed on rocky ground, some some landed on thorny ground, and some landed on good soil. In between when Jesus teaches the parable and when Jesus explains the parable, our text here, verses 13 through 20, the disciples ask him what it means. There's an, an interaction between the two of them. And so Jesus explains the parable to them. As we've seen, the sower is the one who proclaims the message, the seed is the gospel itself, and the soil is those who hear it. In other words, there are four possible outcomes to the preaching of the gospel by those who hear it. Four possible outcomes anytime the gospel is proclaimed. So literally what Jesus is teaching us here is about the proclamation of the gospel and the receptiveness of those who hear it. You see, all the seed is sown by the sower, and as we've noted, it lands among four different surfaces. And in landing upon these different surfaces, it yields different results. First is the seed that lands upon the path. So soil number one is the path, verse 15. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown, okay? So we've got it hitting the path where they hear And Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. Now, quickly, before we look at these soils, one thing that I found really interesting this week, I did not know this, probably because I'm not a farmer now or 2,000 years ago in Israel, but it was actually really common um, in that day for the sower. He would take the seed, the grain, whatever they were going to plant, and they would walk through the fields, and they would just throw the seed out, right? And then they'd spread it all out. I mean, they probably were more meticulous than this, but they spread the seed out there. And then what was really interesting to me was that after they would sow the seed, then they would do the work of preparing the soil for the seed to reap a harvest. And that makes sense as to why Jesus would say here when sometimes the seed lands along the path. So just imagine with me that the platform here is where I want to plant my seed. This is my field. And over here is the path, which is just simply the walking path where those who attend to the field or go around the field would walk along the side of it. And so if I'm sowing seed... And it lands on a path where I'm, having, I'm not going to till the ground. What happens to that seed? Well, just like Jesus says when he teaches the parable, the birds swoop in, they take the seed, and it's gone. It, has, it doesn't have that opportunity to, 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 to die or to germinate and then to produce a fruit. But when Jesus begins interpreting this parable for the disciples, he's telling them that this seed that gets sown on this path, it just is snatched away. It doesn't produce any fruitfulness of the gospel whatsoever. It's just immediately snatched away. And so when we think of the individual who hears it, I would liken this into the reality of hearing God's word with an indifference. There's no need or compulsion to respond to it in faith. And Jesus is very clear that when those who hear the word do not respond in faith to it and that seed is snatched away, that that seed is snatched away by whom? Satan. Now I want you to understand something this morning as we consider anything as it pertains to God's word, anything as it pertains to our lives and, and, and the gospel and Christ or any of these things, Satan is actively at work against you. Right now, as you sit here, and you are in church, and the word of God is being taught, the devil is actively working against 
You listening, you hearing, you believing, you trusting, and you living out. Whether you have already believed it or not. Satan's greatest desire would be for people who do not believe to continue to not believe. And for those who do believe to be more like the soil or those who claim to believe to be more like the soil that we'll look at as we move forward. He will bombard you and I with everything at his disposal to distract you. He has no desire whatsoever for hearers of God's word to prove fruitful for the sake of the gospel. And I, and I, and I want to say this. I actually realized I glossed over this. <clears throat> I think it's important that we recognize when Jesus taught the parable, when Pastor Aaron read it for us in the first part of Mark 4, <clears throat> the first thing Jesus says, <clears throat> excuse me, the first thing Jesus says in verse 3 So we're given some introductory information. He's teaching, so he gets in a boat and he goes out into the sea. So he's got this amphitheater-type setting now where his voice is going to be amplified coming off of the water into the crowd. And what is the first thing that Jesus says in verse 3? Listen. Listen to me is what Jesus is proclaiming. You've gathered around, okay, but you must now listen. And so he teaches the parable, and how does he end the parable, the end the teaching? He who has ears to hear, let him what? Hear. There is a, a major emphasis here on understanding what Jesus is teaching and hearing him teach it, listening to the teaching, okay? Because as we see in this interaction with the disciples when they look for clarification, as he's telling them, you're not listening. If you have the ability, if you're listening, you're going to understand, it's, it's, it's going to make sense. And, and the reason I say that here is because this first soil, the path, it's really pretty straightforward, right? We, we live in a world now that even is at odds. Oh, well, it's always at odds. That's what the Word of God teaches us. But we live in a world now where people are vocally adamant against the things of God. You can preach the gospel, and it's going gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna to achieve its intended result as God desires but if you, if you know somebody who's obstinate to the things of Christ, we're not surprised when they don't respond in faith when they hear it, right? If we're honest, we're probably more surprised when they do respond in faith. That's why we must proclaim that was just for free. But it's very straightforward that the path sown on the ground, or the seed sown on the path, Satan is swooping in to snatch it away. Makes sense. People don't believe. We know we live in a world where people don't believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think oftentimes we don't give enough credit to Satan, the one who is at work seeking to be a distraction, seeking to be a deterrent from those believing by snatching away the seed that is the gospel so that people won't believe. But that's our first soil, the path. Just happened to be where it landed, never really intended to be planted, and it's snatched away. And as we move through the parable, we see... This Satan becomes a little more tactical in how he seeks to snatch away the seed of the gospel from those who would hear it, who would believe it, and who would begin to bear fruit. And the second soil, of course, is rocky ground in verses 16 to 17. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. 
They have no fruit, they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. See, the rocky ground is different from the path in that it initially bears a form of fruit. But eventually, it suffers the same fate as the seed that is sown on the walking path. And that fate is fruitlessness. Okay? It may not be snatched away by the birds of the air. That is Satan, as Jesus explained it. But nonetheless, seed uh, on the rocky ground proves the same result as seed sown on the path. Eventually, it's fruitless. It's not a seed or or it's not a soil, rather, excuse me, that is indifferent and that it's marked by indifference towards the gospel and just plain unbelief. In fact, this ground, this soil actually produces some fruit for a short time. But what we learn here, Jesus very clearly in teaching this says that Satan is still hard at work. And we know that he's tactical and we know that he's wise. And so in his scheming and in his power, he's very powerful, okay? He continues to adapt and to to know. When I say adapt, I mean adapt to how to trip up each of us, okay? He's not changing, but his tactics are changing because people are different. And different things might trip me up than might trip up someone else. And so he's hard at work. It's not like once he snatches away the seed from the path, the seed that lands on the rocky ground, oh, shucks, it's gone. I've lost again. No, he doesn't quit. He stays hard at work. And I would submit to you this morning that one of the greatest tactics of Satan himself is kind of what we see play out. It's not kind of, it's literally what we see play out right here. Jesus says they hear it immediately, they receive it with joy, they have no root in themselves and do for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises, they fall away. You see, the devil uses this tool in his toolbox to affect fruitfulness, worry. The worries of the world. Jesus again says that this word, this seed is initially received with joy But because the root is shallow and ultimately there's no firmly rooted, grounded um, uh, basis for the plant, foundation for the plant, eventually it, it dies. And it dies because of tribulation or persecution on account of the word of God is what Jesus says in his trans, in his um, uh, explanation of the parable. The one who starts bearing a little fruit Because of everyday life as a follower of Christ has to start asking questions that are tough. Jesus is very clear in his word that you cannot serve this world and him, period. And so if we're going to go from serving the world that we live in to serving Jesus, is that seed of the gospel begins to root, begins to to implant itself, we're going to have to reconcile some things. We're going to have to make some hard decisions in our lives with the help of God and his word and the Holy Spirit. Have you ever considered when you think about following Jesus, does believing this gospel or following Jesus mean that I must sever this relationship? Does it mean that my life needs to change in order to rightly reflect Jesus? 
What will people think of me if I do this thing and really follow Jesus? All of these questions are rooted in a common denominator. Worry. What happens if I do this? What, what, what happens if I, um, I didn't ask for permission to do this. I say this all the time, and I, I haven't gotten in trouble yet. I will one of these days. Um, but you know how it is. Uh, it'll, an illustration just came to me. I remember, I don't remember, I remember hearing this. I wasn't around then. My wife, many of you know, is a very good volleyball player. And out of high school, she was offered a scholarship to go play volleyball. And she had a really tough decision to make. And ultimately, my wife chose to not take the scholarship to play volleyball, instead went to Word of Life Bible Institute for a year in New York. There were literally people who said, you're nuts. You're turning down a, a, a free education, an opportunity to continue to do what you love. You get to play volleyball, you get to do this, you get to do X, Y, Z, A, B, C. Now, I didn't ask for permission to use her as an illustration, so I didn't ask her this question, but... I have to imagine when you are determining or when you are trying to determine whether or not you're going to leave a college scholarship on the table, you probably think things like, I wonder what people will think. I know for a fact there were some people who told her she was nuts. The reality for all of us is we have the propensity to ask these kinds of questions all the time. It's easy to say that we've heard the seed that is the gospel. It's easy to say that we have believed it. It is a whole nother thing to take root and to bear fruit. And the devil is hard at work in preventing us from bearing fruit. And he uses worry to be a distraction. It's one of the greatest tools that the devil has at his disposal. Well, disposal. Well, what? If. You guys ever asked that question? What if? See, the rocky ground is not the only type of ground that fails to produce the results of lasting fruitfulness. The thorny ground, though it may look a little bit different, ultimately it produces the same results. Notice verse 18 and 19. And these are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word. But for the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Kind of like the rocky ground, this soil here, Jesus calls it the thorny ground. It also produces fruit. But ultimately, ultimately its lasting fruitfulness comes up dry when Satan uses a couple more tactics to try to uproot the seed that's implanted. First, Jesus says, are the cares of the world. Now, I don't believe that this ground was regarded, uh, was regarded to, or was regarded as, rather, excuse me, as thorny by Jesus. Have you ever tried to keep weeds out of your landscaping? I am convinced it is one of the most difficult tasks of man. And you guys have all been there, right? 
You get your bushes planted, you get your flowers planted, you got all your little knickknacks and trinkets, and you're like, oh, man, look, we've got the fresh mulch or rocks or whatever you want to use, and everything looks great, and you're real pleased on a Saturday afternoon with your landscaping work, and you get up Sunday morning, and you're pulling out of your driveway, and you're like, man, that landscaping looks so good. Thanks for helping me, honey. I couldn't have did it without you. We're going to be the talk of the town. Okay, hopefully we don't go that far. But we really enjoy the work that we've done in our landscaping. And we go to church on a, a Sunday morning, and people ask how our day was, and we probably say, or our weekend was, we seen our weekend was good. We got a lot of work done in the yard. You know, we've been finishing up our landscaping. Uh, Cody, where are you at? You just planted a whole backyard. Right there. Cody, you just planted a whole backyard. And he was so excited about his backyard, he actually texted me when he was done. He said, I got it all planted. So here's to grass. And then it was 110 for nine straight days. So I don't know how your grass is doing, buddy, but... <laughs> It's been snatched up, okay? But here's what happens. You come to church, people ask about your, land, or your weekend, you tell them you worked hard, you're landscaping, but it looks good. You're thankful that, you know, it was a beautiful weekend, you could get it done. And you go out to eat after church. And about 2 o'clock on Sunday afternoon, you pull in your driveway, and what do you notice? A weed. Right there in the middle of your landscaping. And the first question you ask is, how on God's green earth did that weed grow in 12 hours? I don't know, but it did. It does. And these weeds, that they infest our landscaping. And the reality of these weeds are, you don't just spray the weed and then your weeds are gone. Right? You have to keep spraying. You have to keep treating. You have to keep tending to your landscaping if you want to keep the weeds away. But here's the reality where I don't think it was coincidence that Jesus called this ground thorny ground. Have you ever made the mistake of been out in your front yard? You'd be like, oh, look, a weed. And you reach down like this and you grab a hold of it and you pull your hand back and you're bleeding. Because there's some sort of jagged something growing out of the tree that's now manifested itself in your landscaping. Weeds are not easy to deal with. Not only are they a nuisance, not only are they pesky, but they're thorny. And they're difficult. And they draw blood and they, they're, they're, they're a pain, literally, physically. And Jesus says that the cares of this world are, they're really, they're kind of like weeds. They're on this thorny ground. You hear this gospel message, and it sounds good, and you even want to walk with Jesus for a little while. But just like the weeds in the landscaping, it does not take long for the cares of this world to rear their ugly head. To be a nuisance or a distraction. How many young people have been excited by the seed of the gospel only to have it snatched away by academics and youth sports? The cares of this world, unlike weeds, often look like good things. And many times, the cares of this world, they can be, they are, in fact, good things. But what happens is, good things, like weeds, they begin to take over. And before long, they are our affection. And they're our concern. And, 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 and we find ourselves, like this landscaping, this soil that's received it, bearing no lasting fruit. The weeds, they creep in our landscaping. we got to deal with them. The weeds, they creep into our hearts. We've got to deal with them. But we don't. We don't deal with the weeds of our lives. And we've already examined what happens to weeds that aren't dealt with. They populate. They grow. Sometimes you get weeds, you pull them, they come right out. Sometimes you get weeds, you need a chainsaw. 
This is a great analogy for uprooting sin from our lives. Sometimes it's as simple as being intentional and looking into God's word, recognizing that error. But sometimes we need surgery. We need a heart transplant. We need hard work to be done. And the longer the soil that is thorny allows the the, the weeds to infest and germinate and take root, the harder it is to deal with sin. And Jesus says on this ground, the cares of the world, the weeds, they come in, and he literally says they choke it out. There's a very vivid picture of suffocating what's supposed to be there. Jesus says, stormy ground, it suffocates it. But it's not just the cares of this world. It's not just the cares of this world. Jesus also says it's the deceitfulness of riches. The word that Jesus uses here for deceitfulness means to cause someone to have misleading or erroneous views concerning the truth. Sorry, I'm behind. Wants and wealth. Cares of the world was wants. Sorry. Again, let me define the word deceitfulness for you. To cause someone to have misleading or erroneous views concerning the truth this is what it means to be deceitful could that be any more of a perfect example and explanation of what riches wealth or money all the same thing often does to people far too often we get to the place where we believe if our salary was just this much we would be okay Or if we had a newer vehicle, or a bigger house, or a nicer cell phone, or a certain cell phone. Now, once again, listen, hear me. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. I think it's perfectly rational to want a functioning vehicle. I think it's perfectly rational to want a dwelling place, that is a home, that keeps you uh, protected from the elements. Those things are all perfectly normal. But what if we can't afford the new car in the big nice house without working 80 hours a week? Is it still worth it? What if, what if attaining those things calls us to compromise our ability to belong to the body of Jesus Christ? That is to be engaged and plugged in, serving in the body. What if our kids have the nicest, newest stuff, but no dad because he's a slave to his job? You knew I would bring up dads. It's Father's Day, right? Our kids don't need the newest, nicest, dopest, dandiest, whatever. Our kids need dads. Our kids need people who are at home and who are intentional. And I want you to understand something. As much as I say that, like, that's an indictment on me. Man, I fail my kids every day. But I pray that it's not because I'm pursuing all the things that really don't matter. Sometimes the reality for me is, and and like many of us, I get this, right? Like, sometimes you just, I'm just selfish, It's not even that I'm a slave to my job so that my kids can have new, nice everything. My kids don't go without, don't get me wrong. But more than all a new, nice everything and being involved in everything and going to every activity and participating in every play and doing everything under the sun, and none of those things are bad or wrong, okay? 
But sometimes the better choice is to tell our kids we're not going to do that and to be present with them instead of working 80 to 90 hours a week to provide things that have no eternal value whatsoever. None. But you see, that's what wealth does oftentimes. Or I should say the unhealthy desire for wealth. The deceitfulness of riches, the lie that says if you just have this or you just are this or you can give this to your kids or you can provide this for your spouse, then everything will be okay. The second we are deceived by these types of mindsets is the second that fruitfulness has gone out the window for Christ and the gospel and we're given into other things. kids, our wives, our families. They need parents, moms and dads that love Jesus and prioritize Jesus over the things of this world and the riches that it has to offer. Because Jesus is very clear in what the outcome of the pursuit of riches is. No lasting fruit. No lasting fruit. You see, the things of this world will never satisfy you. And I don't care how much money you make, and I don't care how new your car is, the day you drive it off the lot, it depreciates, and it's getting older. And there's always going to be a need for a new one. There's always going to be this desire, if it's unchecked, to have a, a bigger house, to have more stuff. Because the world and the things of the world were never meant to satisfy. This is a tactic of the devil. And through deceitfulness, he says, these things will complete you. They will make you happy. They will make you someone. What was deceitfulness? It was cultivating or developing an erroneous view in regards to the truth. The truth is those things could never satisfy you. Only Jesus can satisfy you. And so while I'm talking about dads for just a minute, I want to encourage you to something. You've heard me say this before. You want your kids to love Jesus? Love Jesus. You want your kids to prioritize Jesus? Prioritize Jesus. And then help them to prioritize Jesus. Because that's your example... This is moms and dads. I know it's Father's Day, but moms, you got to listen up too. Your example will go significantly further than anything you could just simply teach them through your words. You want your kids to have a heart of worship and adoration of Jesus? And you probably should worship and adore Jesus yourself. God can work in spite of us but doesn't it just make more sense, especially if we claim to be believers, to allow him to work through us instead of in spite of us? The deceitfulness of riches is going to destroy any opportunity to bear lasting fruit. But you know, the beauty of God's word and the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that deception and temporary fruitfulness are not the only options. There is a fourth option. 
And Jesus speaks to this option, this something. In, he speaks to something else entirely. He speaks to bearing fruit that will last. And this fruit comes where? From the good soil. Verse 20. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word of God and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. Good soil produces because it has been implanted with the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it's been implanted with the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says here, those who hear the word and accept it, they bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. Now, I want you to understand, going back to first century uh, agricultural terms, when Jesus would have made this statement about good soil in 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold, the people, no doubtedly hearing him, probably thought he was insane. A good crop was seven to eight-fold. That was a good harvest. If every seed you planted yielded seven to eight crops, it was a good harvest. Ten was an unbelievable harvest. So if you knew how many seeds you sown and you had a tenfold harvest, it was unbelievable. It was an unbelievable year. But Jesus says, the good soil that accepts the seed will bear fruit thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. Now we need to understand something this morning. Jesus can make statements like the one he made, 30, 60, 100-fold, because the harvesting of souls through the power of the gospel is an amazingly powerful thing. And God, through his power, is reproducing. And as we have seen over the last couple of months, the goal is that all believers would produce lasting fruit. There, there is nowhere in God's word that we see, well, I just need to get to chair two. I'm going to hang out in chair two. Well, you know what? I've been doing this for a little while, so I need to get over to chair three. No, the word of God is clear that the goal for everyone who names the name of Jesus Christ is that they would bear fruit. And as we've seen recently, a little while back, and we'll talk about it again next week and a little more in depth, in John 15, when Jesus talks about you must abide in him to bear fruit, the fruit he's talking about is not apples and oranges. It's disciples of Jesus Christ. That is the goal for everyone who names the name of Jesus Christ. Not just for some. And this is how Jesus measures fruitfulness. It's not about attendance. It's not about service. It's not about giving. It's not about any of those things. It's about reproduction. Now, I want you to understand something. As we move through these chairs, we're, we're not just going to just be reproducing. But if we're spiritually maturing, our character should be changing. Our character should be such that it looks a little bit more like Jesus than it did when we were in chair one. Remember, because in chair one, we're spiritually dead. Are we growing? That's what we talk about, spiritually maturing. It takes a long time to reproduce spiritually. And we don't have the ability to do it in and of ourselves. And that's what makes when Jesus says 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold so amazing and fantastic. The gospel is given to us by God. It's empowered to produce fruit by God, right? And just kind of like being a dad, you and I get to be involved in the process. But somewhere along the way, 
somewhere along the way for far too many people, they get stuck. And they don't produce fruit that lasts. See, only one of these soils produces fruit that lasts. And this matters because you might be thinking this morning, you might be wondering which soil describes me today. Now, hopefully you recall, I said when we started that the chairs and the soils are not synonymous with one another, but there is a relationship between them. There's only one soil that produces lasting fruit. But understand this, that soil is made up of people in chair two, chair three, in chair four because they're maturing because they're growing to be more like Jesus in each of the soils that's not the good soil the path the rocky ground the thorny ground understand something they do not produce fruit that lasts and if throughout this process this morning you've said, you know what, I think I might be on the thorny ground. You know what, I, I do pretty good. I do. If your fruit doesn't last, then you ought to heed what Jesus is calling his hearers to do. Remember, he said, listen, and he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And Jesus would go on. The first three soils, the path, the rocks, the thorns. I'm going to just tell you, that's chair one. If that's our lives, if, if, if the, the fruit of the gospel is choked out because of worry, want, or wealth, you just might be in chair one. Now, I'm not the Holy Spirit of God. I am not the discerner of hearts. I can't be for you. But my encouragement to you is just like I said a second ago, the same encouragement that Jesus had for those who were hearing him. Examine your life. Inspect the fruit. I don't remember where I was at recently. Yes, I do. I just remembered. We were over at Brent and Aaron Matters a while ago. I don't know if you've been there recently. And they got this fruit on the counter in a fruit basket. It looked so real, I had to pick it up and, like, squeeze it to determine that it really wasn't an apple. I don't even, like, eat apples, especially when they got skin on them, like whole apples. But I almost took a bite just to prove to myself that it was fake. And you start talking about bearing fruit in our lives. Jesus' admonition here is clear. Examine your life. Inspect your fruit. The cost of following Jesus is great. I understand we live in a world that has done everything that it can to make the gospel of Jesus Christ uncompromisingly lovely for everyone. That's not the picture that Jesus paints. When we think of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the cost of following Jesus, Jesus said things, not our culture, not movements. Jesus said things like, you must die, take up your cross, follow me. You must deny yourself is what Jesus says. That's Mark chapter 8. These are all right here recorded for us by Mark in this gospel. Mark very clearly talks in chapter 9 about how anyone who is not for Jesus is against Jesus. There's no middle ground. Okay? You're either with him or you're not. 
The cost of following Jesus is great. He says in Mark chapter 10, to be great in the kingdom of God is to be a servant. There in Mark 10 is where Mark tells us, he reminds us that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You see, Jesus, as we engage with his word and we engage with what he's teaching, he never seeks to lead anyone to believe that following him is an easy task. Literally, Jesus says things to people like, well, I'll follow you, Jesus, but I need to bury my father first. I need to wait for my dad to pass away and then I'll bury you. And Jesus said, let the dead bury the the bed. You come and follow me. Don't worry about that. Jesus told the rich young ruler when he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I've kept all the commandments. But Jesus knew where his heart was. And he said, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And no, that is not a lobbying for socialism on the part of Jesus. He said, sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, come and follow me. He was choked out by wealth the desire and the quest for wealth and the worry and the wants of this world. But Jesus never let anybody to believe that following him was an easy task. And this is evidenced in the picture of the seed that is sown by the sower. Understand something about a seed and how it works. In order for a seed to be effective, it must first die. If the seed does not die, it cannot reproduce fruit. And the call of the gospel, the seed, is to likewise die. Die to ourselves each and every single day. And if we are not dying to ourselves and living for Christ, then we just might be living for the things of the world. And living for the things of this world will kill our ability to be fruitful. Wealth, worry, and wants, they destroy our ability to move from chair two along to chair four in spiritual maturation. They kill our ability to grow spiritually. And so I would ask you, are you moving along in maturity or have you become stuck? If you're stuck, It might be because we're too focused on the things of this world. We're not focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ and on Christ himself. Are you stuck or are you spiritually maturing? Let's pray. God, what a privilege it is to have your word and to to heed the, the words of Jesus to understand that as he, as he taught, he invited people to follow him, but he never watered down what that meant. And I pray, God, that as we look at this parable and we consider these soils, um, God, just that we would be mindful today of the exhortation of Jesus to examine ourselves. And I pray, God, that we would be able to examine our lives and see that, that gospel fruitfulness is evident. Only the fruit of the things that are done for eternity will last. And so, God, help us to be people who are about your gospel, the seed. Help us to be faithful sowers. Help us, God, to live our lives among people in such a way 
that the invitation to follow Jesus would be a glorious invitation. Help us, God, to live our lives in such a way that those around us who your word very clearly says, if they're not for you, are against you. God, they're lost and they're dead in their sin. God, help us to live our lives if we're in Christ in such a way that those who are dead would want to be made alive. You have called your people to be different, to bear fruit in keeping, God, with repentance and faith. And we pray, God, that you would help us to that end. I pray today, God, for the one who may be stuck. Maybe somebody's sitting here today and said, man, you know, I, I, I feel like I'm stuck and I've become preoccupied with this, that, or the other thing. I don't know what it is, God, but I would just pray today that you would help uh, anybody who may be stuck to see that, first and foremost, they need to be sure that they've been made alive, that they're not spiritually dead, but that they've been made alive in Christ. And God, as they've, if they have in fact trusted Christ for salvation, I would just pray, God, that you would help them to, to be willing to be honest about why they might be stuck. As we talked about, God, dealing with the things of this world that occupy us and keep us from you can be a tough, tough task. So we just pray for boldness, God, and for confidence and a willingness for those who are stuck, God, to do whatever they need to do to become unstuck and to mature and ultimately, God, to produce lasting fruit. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you even as we've saying, God, that you are good. And uh, I pray, God, that it would be the desire of those of us who are earthly fathers to represent the heavenly father who is good in all of his ways and in everything that he does. God, may it be our heart's desire to rightly represent you, God, so that even in our own homes, those that you've entrusted to our care might look to us and see what we have, that they might desire to know Jesus, that they might develop a, a love and an adoration and a, a desire and willingness to worship Jesus. Father, work in all of our hearts today. We know, God, that as you work, it's for our good and it's for your glory. Help us to this end today. In Jesus' name we pray.